This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. Even in non-pandemic times, the arts find themselves marooned in the doldrums in January. But with such a rich repository of arts conversations that I had with artists around Missouri last year, I thought we would take another trip down memory lane and revisit some of those chats. So on this week's show, we have visual artist Lindsay Dunnigan in Kirksville, painter Andy Thomas in Carthage, jeweler Alison Norfleet Bringer in St. Louis, and artist and entrepreneur Malcolm Airbrush Assassin McRae in Southeast Missouri. Let's head out. I have always had a fascination with differing degrees of opacity and translucency, vellum paper, gauzy, diaphanous fabrics, things that hint at something beyond, a mystery beneath, a glimpse of a bigger picture or a secret. And I don't know if that fascination was really something I could have put my finger on, but when I saw the work of artist Lindsay Dunnigan, it was the layers that spoke to me first. Lindsay is an assistant professor of art at Truman State University, where she runs the painting department and her artworks are in the collections of, amongst others, Boston Children's Hospital, Nashville Airport, Marriott Hotels and Capital One. And here she is. Good morning, Lindsay Dunnigan. Good morning. Thanks for having me. You are welcome. I am captivated by your work. I wonder whether what I find fascinating in your work is the same as your intent and and whether that matters. As the creator How important is it to you that a viewer feels your intent or that they feel something? So it's interesting. You really hit the nail on the head as to what I am fascinated by, which definitely is this hidden narrative, uh, layers revealing themselves. But as far as my desire for the viewer to experience what I am experiencing when I make the work, when I look at the work, I don't really have any objective for the viewer. I think everyone approaches art from their own personal lens and their own experiences. That's what they take to view things. And, uh, you know, if someone interprets my art differently, it's totally fine with me. So, yeah, I don't have any expectations from the viewer, really. I always worry when I look at a piece of art that maybe I'm not doing it correctly because there's a correct way and a wrong way in terms of what the artist intends. But really, I suppose as the artist, you just want to move people in some way. Yeah, I think that some people, that's their motivation is to move people. And I think other people are just really trying to understand their world. And it's actually not even about other people creating the art and showing the art. Um, And if you happen to connect with someone, then that's just a really fabulous bonus. So for me, yeah, it it is more about uh, just discovery and uncovering secrets. and, And when I find, you know, someone who who I can relate to, who understands what I'm doing, then it's just such an exciting feeling. But I don't expect that. Well, your work explores human interactions with the natural environment, how we move through it, how we affect it, how we are spiritually connected to it, all of which started with your childhood in Alaska. So when you think about Alaska in terms of art and materials and your senses, what are the textures or the notes that you want to include in your work? 
Yeah, Alaska is just this absolutely magnificent place that is full of mystery. You know, my dad and my mom would take my brother on these cross-country skiing trips, uh, you know, just in our backyard. We would hop out and in the evenings or on the weekends go for these long, long, long skis and uh, just come across a moose on the path. Exciting stuff. So that sense of mystery is definitely a huge part of just my whole childhood in Alaska. And then, of course, that crisp, cold feeling that makes you feel alive. And then feeling grateful for light, you know, because in Alaska, it's dark for so long. We have the shortest day of the year where the sun never rises. And then we also have the longest day of the year where the sun never sets in the summer. So in those dark winters, you just really long for light. And so I think that shows in my work as well. Another incredible landscape you spent two years in was the Atlas Mountain region of Morocco during your stint there with the Peace Corps. How did your time in Moroccan culture alter your sense of human connection with the environment? Oh, that's really interesting. So Morocco, the landscape where I lived for those two years is really, really different from anything I've experienced elsewhere. It has this magnificent vastness where you can just see forever. But then there are also these amazing rolling hills and cavernous spaces as well. So it's magnificent, but in a way that's really different. Where I lived, it wasn't quite as lush. It was a little drier, but there were still farms and gardens. And then the people in Morocco, where I lived and pretty much everywhere I went in Morocco, were extremely welcoming. It's really interesting. The community, there was a lot less fear of the stranger in Morocco. And it could be just because maybe I was a foreign anomaly. People were so friendly. But I think that there really is this deep kindness that people grow up inviting their neighbor in for tea or, you know, someone who who they maybe meet at a shop. So people were always so welcoming. So that extreme friendliness, desire to get to know one another that I picked up from Moroccans and then that vast landscape, I think that really is reflected in my project, the Journey Home Project, where I gathered homes from lots of diverse people and then painted them into this huge labyrinth you could walk through. Well, you have three bodies of work that I would like to touch on today, if we have time to do all three of them. There's Natural Liquidation, Northern Catch, and Skimming Boundaries. So let's start with Natural Liquidation. Tell us a little bit about that body of work. So that body of work stemmed from a long series that I had where I worked with maps, just really fascinated by the landscape and also especially viewing it from above. You know, when I was a kid, my mom moved my brother and I to Texas when I was 10 and my dad stayed in Alaska. So I have twice a year during Christmas or Thanksgiving and then also all summer, my brother and I would fly back and forth between them. And so I just have this deep memory of looking out the plane window as a kid with my little brother and longing for one of my parents, especially my dad, because we spent less time with him. And so we would look out onto this landscape with mountains and rivers that were cut through the land. And it felt like this physical cut between my nuclear family, that visual metaphor for what I was experiencing. And that it was the genesis for the, all of my map work really just um, the magic of the sky, but then also that deep emotional connection to family. 
And then when I came to the series Natural Liquidation, I was really thinking about the landscape and what we are losing in terms of climate change and just what we're sacrificing for progression. And I started to change the boundaries of those shapes to reflect maps. So the the paintings are no longer on straightforward rectangles or squares. They're instead on these cut substrates that are more amorphous. And I was thinking about liquidating our assets and basically what we're giving up. And the shape of those substrates is also reminiscent of receding coastlines and our changing landscape. And one of the things that happens is that the exterior landscape doesn't align with the interior painted landscape. So roads are kind of going off the edge and bodies of water um, dissipate into the edge as well. So this misalignment of how we're approaching the earth. I mean, I'm still, I'm very hopeful that we're going to be able to help get ourselves back on track and, and do some reconnaissance work in the environment. But there is definitely a sadness to that work. You write about your collection, Northern Catch, that it parallels a glance back at your childhood and evokes a Panglossian nostalgia, meaning it is a memory of the best of all possible worlds. What memories hold that collection together for you? Oh, I have a great memory to share. (laughs) (laughs) So when we used to go skiing, we would go cross-country skiing. That is a really tough exercise. I don't know if you've ever done that before. I have. (laughs) So as a kid, my brother and I, we would just complain, complain, complain. You know, we don't want to go. And my dad would be like, we're going. And so we would hop in the car. And then there's this one place we like to go to a lot. But there was this one hill that was absolutely massive. And every time we got to the very top of that hill, he would take out a Kit Kat bar and he would split it and he, we would each get a piece. <laughs> so we were so motivated by getting a little piece of this Kit Kat bar. You can tell my parents were stingy with sugar, <laughs> <laughs> but that is such a good memory. Like, oh, I climb this mountain, I get a Kit Kat, a piece of a Kit Kat. <laughs> I love one of the works in that collection is adorable. It's a a Jacob's Ladder, which was such a flashback memory for me because I had one of those toys as a child. What inspired you to come up with that for this collection? I love making books. So I am a bookmaker and I had made a Jacob's Ladder a long time ago when I was in graduate school. And it is so confusing to make. (laughs) I mean, it is really like a puzzle. But it's also a really fun puzzle. And when you finish it, it's so satisfying because all of a sudden you have this object that does something magical, which is that it just flips around without you having to actually do much. So I just thought it was perfect for this series that is rooted in thoughts of play and childhood. Um, And also one of the things I liked about it is that I use a lot of gold and silver leafing in my work. And that's definitely true in this series. And when you flip the Jacob's Ladder, that silver leaf just shimmers because the whole thing is vibrating as each little piece falls into the next. And it just feels alive. It feels like water. It feels very much like the way I want the work to be behaving. You know, it's kind of physically doing what I would like the work to be able to do. 
The third portfolio of work that I really want to touch on before we close, because it was the one that moved me the most, is called Skimming Boundaries. And like many people, I watched a parent slowly disappear into dementia. And this collection is about your grandmother and her battle with Alzheimer's. Tell us a little bit about how your artwork follows the journey that she took. So if you look at these pieces, they are landscapes with holes missing or they're landscapes that have multi-layers and you can't fully see exactly what's going on. And I was really thinking about this space that exists beyond us that we can't touch, but some, some do. So when my grandmother would come in and out of herself, out of the recognizable parts of herself, I wondered where she had gone. And it felt like she was testing the realms or the boundaries of this other place that she was about to enter. And it was pretty clear the sicker she got that she was going to be passing on. Uh, And for me, I use forest imagery because I just feel such a spiritual connection to the landscape, especially the forest. And it just seemed like the perfect place to lose someone to this other realm, to this other space that if we're living, we can't fully know or touch. Your titles for the work, Cascading Thresholds, Searching the Edges, Peripheral Collision, combined with the imagery, it just really took me back to the last years of my father's life as I watched the edges of his memory blur and shrink. And I've never seen art that captures how I felt. And I love the dyes that you used. You use natural plant dyes in that. Tell us a little bit about the dyes. So the dyes were something that I had in my mind for a very long time. When I was in the Peace Corps, I helped develop the small business of artisans. And one of the major industries in Morocco is weaving. And so one of the things that we did quite often was teach weavers how to use natural dye in their work, because there's so many amazing colors that you can get from the landscape. And and it's one of the things that I have always been interested in ever since. But I never really found a way to incorporate it into my work until my grandmother was going through Alzheimer's and I was just missing her and mourning her loss. And, and this just sort of bubbled up. You know, I figured out, okay, if I dye paper instead of wool fiber, then I can get a similar effect. And then I would look at the paper and, and that's how the idea of this sort of disintegrating moments came to me. Well, you can see all of Lindsay Dunnigan's portfolio of work on her website at lindsaydunnigan.com. Lindsay, thank you so much for sharing your inspirations with us today. And I hope we might see a show of your work in Colombia before too long. Thank you so much for having me. This is really fun. A single painting should not define an artist, but in our contemporary 24-hour news cycle and the age of viral media, a single painting did define my next guest for a short while back in 2018, putting him in the full glare of the media before, like squirrels, their attention was diverted by the next big thing. And Mandy Thomas got to go back to doing what he has done for 30 years, paintworks that tell stories. Stories of civil war battles, of bandit ambushes and saloon brawls, of poker games and dancehall girls, as well as of political history. His works are full of action and movement as if they are stills from a movie. And if you press the play button, the figures in the painting will start to move. 
So although I cannot not ask about that painting, that's not where I want to start, as the works of Andy Thomas are not only in many private and corporate collections around the country, but also in museums, on book covers, in magazines, and in his own book, The Artful Journey, the artwork of Andy Thomas. Hello, Andy, and welcome to Speaking of the Arts. Well, hello, Diane, and thank you for having me. Your works draw comparisons with people like American Old West painters Charles Russell and Frederick Remington, and you cite Norman Rockwell and Howard Pyle as artists who have influenced you. And I'm curious, after 30 years of developing your own artistic voice, whether being compared to other artists is flattering or annoying? Well, to those people, it's uh, flattering. Actually, it's <laughs> flattering any time I mention it at all, so I take it. <laughs> Well, you have a fascinating story in not only being largely self-taught as an artist, but after 16 years of working in marketing and advertising, you decided that life was too short not to do what you love. And you left the corporate world behind to leap into the uncertainty of making a living as an independent artist at a time when you had six children living at home. And that is a story after my own heart as I made a similar move at around the same age. So what persuaded you to do it? Well, I, I just had that itch, and I had the best job in my hometown, I felt like, but I just couldn't see doing it for 30 more years and being happy, and I was still fairly young in my 30s, or lower 30s, and my wife and I, my wife was very supportive from, you know, at any suggestion of that, she was uh, behind it 100%, and we talked it through and just said, well, I had some money saved through the stock option thing, through the company. We could live, if I didn't sell a painting, we could live just fine for two years, and then I'd be 35 years old and have to find a job. And that wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. <laughs> had you studied art at school? No, I, I went to night school. I actually started work at the corporation when I was 17, and realized that I could have an opportunity with the company. It's Leggett and Play. It's a great company. Love them. So I went to night school and got a degree in marketing management. But I did manage to take probably about 12 hours of art at night, which it's a little hard to get night classes in art, but I did. I think there's a moment for a lot of artists when mentally they cross a line and they go from saying, I paint, to I am a painter. What was that moment for you? Well, you know, I still try to describe myself as a painter and not an artist because that term means so much. But I think at some point, I the, the first year that I was painting full time, I saw a vast improvement in my painting. And I was trying to learn to make up figures because I really couldn't afford the photograph models. Mm. And it was hard to get them. It was back in the days of film. It was slow and you, know, you wasted a lot of film. So I was making figures up. And after about two years of full-time painting, I realized, wow, I could do some things that a lot of people couldn't. And I, I got some confidence at that point. So that's when I started to feel, uh, went from being just an amateur trying to do a pretty painting that I could sell to being confident in my abilities. Well, your works are incredibly detailed. Multiple people caught mid-action, horses rearing, battles full of bodies and gunfire, famous figures seated around tables and campfires. And, and your passion for storytelling really comes through in your work. But a story 
has so many moments. So tell me how you decide where to put the point of view and how you decide what story to tell. Well, those are good questions, of course. The good stories just come up on you, really. You know, I read a lot. I read a lot of uh, journals and stuff from the Old West. Uh, but otherwise, I have things I, that interest me. It's just, it's kind of, if I'm interested, there's surely somebody else interested in the same thing. But putting together the whole package, I think it's like choreography that, you know, you kind of have a basic layout, but then every figure has to interact with the, the next one. And that's why I had so much trouble with photography, because, you know, I really don't know what the figure is exactly going to be doing until I start painting it. You know, it's all made up. I have to decide, mm. well, what color shirt? You know, so I have 14 shirts in the painting. So I have to decide 14 different colors of shirts. You know, it's kind of exhausting in a way. <laughs> 14 different faces, 14 different types of shoes, you know, this and on and on. But, you know, it just kind of evolves. I, it's not much of a master plan, and sometimes they change as I start painting them, which is, it should be kept that way. If I knew exactly what I was going to paint, it would be a very boring process anyway. So... Back in 2008, you did a pair of paintings that featured former American presidents sitting around a table playing poker. One was a game with eight Republican presidents called the Grand Ole Gang, including Reagan, Nixon, Lincoln, and the other called True Blues with eight Democrats, including Kennedy, Clinton, Truman. And in both works, they appear to be at a convention. And I, and I love your comment on the works that some of the greatest times anyone can enjoy are when we can let our guard down because we are among the those who have been where we have been, people who know the truth and don't make harsh judgments, which is just so true. Right. How did those first paintings come about? Well, I have to admit that they weren't my idea. <laughs> and I, you know, part of being creative is being open to other people's ideas. I was working with a print company and the president of that company, a real fine fellow, he had suggested, they had suggested a lot of things most of which I rejected. But then I remember Dina coming around the corner and she described it and I said, I love it. I'll do it. I loved it because it's such a challenge. You know, I'd worked for years just to be able to paint a portrait. Painting people's faces is a real challenge. You know, you start off and you're lucky if it looks more human than ape, you know, because your proportions are off. And then you're lucky if you get a likeness mm. and then you get really good if you can get a likeness and it can appear spontaneous or as if the person could speak to you. So that's that's a challenge on a portrait, but I have eight to do. And so that was in the early days. The Internet wasn't quite as developed uh, images and stuff. And so I struggled to find pictures on the Internet that I could modify the lighting or sometimes even flop them if they have a symmetrical face. Or maybe take one that is a flash picture, use it for the features, and then use the lighting off of another photograph. And so I had a lot of, it was a big challenge. And I had, that. that's really when painting is very interesting, when you're not sure you can do it. And uh, so I, that's how that came about. It wasn't even my idea. But. <laughs> it was a great idea. Who was the hardest of all the presidents to paint? Oh, well... I'll tell you, the recent painting with Donald Trump was hard. He's a hard man to paint because of the, you know, most people have some features that involve, you know, some dark eyes, dark eyebrows, deep shadows, 
he didn't have that, and that was a, that was a challenge. Hmm. Was anybody's smile hard to capture? Because you're not always, they're not always smiling presidents in official photographs. Yeah, that ties into another element of it. Finding smiling pictures of Richard Nixon was not easy. <laughs> you know, there are people who naturally smile, like Eisenhower. He smiled all the time. He's very comfortable in his skin. Gerald Ford smiled all the time. Very comfortable man. Richard Nixon was always guarded. You know, he had that unfortunate paranoia, and so he was always a little guarded. But in my original color sketch, I had Nixon frowning and protecting his cards, you know, holding his cards close to his chest and, and frankly, in a paranoid gesture, like people are trying to see his cards. And I laughed at it when I put it in there, so that's perfect. And then I, as I got closer to painting, I said, no, that's that's kind of being mean. You know, he kind of had clinical paranoia, you know, and I don't want to make fun of that. I'm going to said, someday I'm going to meet members of his family and I don't want them feeling bad. And at that moment, I decided all the presidents I paint are going to be as good looking as I can get them. They're going to be happy. They're going to be comfortable. It's going to be a feel good painting. And I've, I'm, I'm glad I made that decision. I have since met several members of Nixon's family and his niece last year. And she just went on and on. She was thanked me, you know, because he's he so often ridiculed. But she was so thankful that it was respectful, I guess. So then we flash forward to 2018 and there was an episode of 60 Minutes shot at the White House, which showed an updated version of your Republican president's painting, now including President Trump and called the Republican Club. And suddenly all the world descended upon you. Yeah. How did that feel? Everybody should get to do that once in their life. <laughs> it was just a lot of fun, even though it was a very, you know, it went on for about a week and a half. I was doing interviews in the truck as we drove. I was pulling off on the highway to get connections. It was a lot of fun. I'm not sure I represented my part of the country well because my accent comes through no matter how hard I try to disguise it. <laughs> it was strange, though, because after 60 minutes, my phone started ringing and I told Dean, I said, boy, the telemarketers are out in force now. I wonder what it is about Sunday night. And finally, I answered one, and it was a reporter. And I did an interview on the spot. And I had two more calls that night and then just got a barrage in the morning. And President Trump called you too, right? He did. He did. What happened was we I had done a portrait of Daryl Issa. And he's a Californian Republican representative. Yes. And so we had... You know, we had a great visit, went to Washington and twice, and uh, he gave me a tour of the Capitol. So we kind of, he feels like a friend. Of course, he probably, that's, he's a politician, but um, he told Dina that he was going to present one of the paintings to President Trump and that I needed to be by the phone. So all Dina told me was, you know, you need to be at the house at 4 o'clock or 5 o'clock, whatever <laughs> it was. I was mowing the field, and I realized, well, it's getting close to 4 o'clock, and, and I turned the mower off, came in the house. I got having grass clippings all over me. And she said, well, he, Daryl's going to be giving that to the president at five o'clock. You know, he might call. And I said, yeah, right. He's not going to call. But he did call. And he was very gracious. You know, it's very unusual, though, to get a call. The White House says, I'm putting you through the president. He said, I'm in the Oval Office with Vice President Pence and Daryl Issa, who I understand you know. <laughs> thought, wow. Wow. <laughs> But he was he was quite gracious. A different, you know, it's, uh, it's his human voice, his friendly voice. Right. 
It seems like that that moment or that time period must have been financially like watching a slot machine empty at a decade's worth of mint because you had prints available. I mean, so suddenly this was the most famous painting in the world for, you know, half a minute. And there was a, a matching one. There was one of the Democrats with Obama in it too, the Democratic Club. So yes. did your website crash? Could you keep up with the amount of prints <laughs> that everybody was asking for? Yeah, well, what happened, We the, I had left that when this all started, we were driving to St. Louis to attend a funeral and so these calls were going on, you know, during that. But we finally got back on two days later, and my son-in-law came in. He said, did you show Andy the numbers? And <laughs> I said, what? I, I really didn't think about that. But, yes, they, they had overwhelming. Well, my son-in-law helped. My stepson helped. They organized and everything. And they got all the orders out. And I think in all the thousands of orders, they had one that they missed, did, did wrong. So we were lucky that we weren't completely overwhelmed. I want to end with a work that is similarly a group of men sitting around a campfire. It's called American Storytellers. The 11 men include Mark Twain, Norman Rockwell, Teddy Roosevelt, Ben Franklin, Ernest Hemingway, Buffalo Bill and others sitting around a campfire sharing stories and camaraderie. And included in that 11 is you. What do you hope your legacy will be as a painter? You know, I, I don't know. I really don't know. I, I have a lot of historical paintings that will be around for a long time because I have painted some scenes that will never be, not likely to be painted, uh, you know. But that campfire painting is one of my favorites because I, I had the idea for it. And in these scenes, you know, you you don't you have to have somebody with their back to the viewer or it looks mm. like a stage setting. And so I had a figure roughed in there, but I I'd painted... Uh, Mark Twain, who's a love, Mark Twain, and Will Rogers. And I had the campfire there, and I thought, dang, I'd like to be there. <laughs> I'd like to be around a ca any campfire, but especially when some good storyteller is talking. And I just thought, oh, really, would like to do that. And I thought, I think I'll be there. So I painted myself in. <laughs> I love it. Well, you can see the many works of Andy Thomas on his website at andythomas.com and his series of paintings commemorating the Civil War Battle of Pea Ridge are on permanent display at the Pea Ridge National Military Park in Pea Ridge, Arkansas. Andy Thomas, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thank you, Diana. Thank you very much. I don't remember when I first met the jewellery artist Alison Norfleet Bringer, but I do remember thinking that she was unforgettable in the loveliest way. Her passion for creating works of beauty that are imbued with her own desire to lift people's spirit is inspirational and part of what makes her unforgettable. Alison has won so many awards for her work that I could fill the next 15 minutes just reciting them. So I'll just say a lot. Her studio is in St. Louis, but she has been a regular visitor to Columbia for many years, showing her work at the Art in the Park and Fall into Art Festivals, as well as at Bluestem Missouri Crafts on South 9th Street. And I am so thrilled that I get to chat with my friend, Alison Norfleet Bringer, on this week's show. Good morning, lovely lady. Good morning. Good morning. Hi, everybody. When I think of your work, the first thing that I think of is how you call each of your works your babies, which is so indicative of how much love you pour into each one of your designs. Of course, then you sell them. So that makes you a slightly odd mother. But <laughs> <laughs> it's adoption. Tell me about your relationship with the works you create. 
Well, it actually starts for me with a sketch. I'm one of those people who actually, even though I'm not as technically wanting every little piece to fit certain ways, but for me, I have to plan everything out. So everything starts off with the sketches. I start sketching out the design and that I include a lot of different aspects into my pieces, such as drawings that are sealed and then put into the piece. I just spend so much time with them. So I'm going from the drawing to hand sawing to fabricating, sometimes adding color onto the metal, then sometimes doing the drawings and painting, sealing those that and riveting everything together. So I spend so much time with them. They become my little, my little babies. And then I I look at it as my adoption center is my booth. So (laughs) they get adopted out to their new home and some people post pictures and they show, hey, I'm wearing one of these pieces and I got it from this art fair and this artist and you got to check her out. And then I said, well, my baby has a good new home. <laughs> How long do you work on it? One of the bigger designs, the necklaces, the pendants that you do. I mean, is that a week's worth of work? Basically, yeah. I have a tendency to work on multiple pieces at the same time, though. So that's it gets kind of dicey of knowing exactly how long, but it's a, a strong amount of hours because I'll, like I said, just sketching it out. Sometimes I'll resketch a couple of times and I'm one of those odd people. I actually sketch with an ink pen because I get to the point that when I'm laying down an actual line, I want to commit to that type of shaping. I will redraw it, but if I have a pen and pencil, like pencil and eraser, it's never going to go anymore. So that by that time, it's it's a strong amount of time and not a strong amount of hours, but it's a labor of love. So that's the good thing. Well, I mean, you didn't start out in, uh, well, you did start out in fine art, right? You don't have a fine art degree, but in, in retail advertising with an emphasis in fashion illustration. Yes. So, so when did jewelry enter the equation? It's an interesting story. I basically, I when I was younger, I said, I'm going to be a fashion designer. I'm going to end up in New York. I ended up getting my first degree towards that area and everything was fine. And I actually did art shows where I hand painted different type of clothing and I would design the clothing and then do the imaging and started out that way. Coming to St. Louis, though, my husband was getting a second degree and We came to St. Louis and I ended up working at a craft alliance in the, it was at that time the Del Mar Loop. It's now since moved, but I was a gallery assistant. They said, oh, you could take classes. And I said, well, okay. And you can have them for free. I'm like, oh, that's nice. And (laughs) I ended up taking a couple of jewelry classes and metalsmithing. And I was like, oh, this is kind of fun. And then a couple of the, the department heads, if they said, you might want to consider, you could get another degree. There's a place there, Maryville University. And we know the teacher, she's really a good teacher. I think you need to run with this. This is, this. I think it's in your wheelhouse. And I wanted a way to combine my drawings and paintings that I've already in that fashion. And then I love drawing. I love painting and the metalwork and and ended up with a second degree from Maryville University studying under Sherry Jardace. And that's how this all kind of, just because my husband was getting his degree, I I guess I wanted to just follow him. (laughs) I mean, your notebooks of your designs are works of art 
in themselves because you really start from this fine art perspective and your love of painting and drawing. Do you ever think about, or maybe you do this, do you ever frame and sell your artwork designs? I have not as of yet. At the different art fairs, I will have the books out as the actual piece sells. I actually have the person who's purchasing the work signed by their drawing of their piece. It's almost like my little log. So I almost keep those almost like my own personal log. But with some of the different events I have done, especially for charity organizations, sometimes I will actually take the piece, take my drawing. And if there is an actual drawing that's on the inside, I make a copy of that, put it all into one frame so that customer will get those pieces. But I haven't haven't really thought about selling the actual drawings. I just love to show them because sometimes people will say, well, this is a really nice piece. Where did you get, I always got these odd questions. Where do you get the components to put this together? And I'm like, well, no, no, I, I, I create, I hand saw, I say, you know, jeweler saw in a dream and, and then I'll lay the piece onto the drawing and then people really get it. Like, oh, it's from that drawing all the way to what I'm wearing. And I say, yes. So I keep them around as the connection so they can feel that, that whole a line of how it actually came from drawing to what they're wearing. How would you describe your jewelry to people who haven't seen it or people listening on a radio say? <laughs> I, I definitely makes media assemblage jewelry. I'm a person who really wants, rather than the art being on the wall, I want the art to be with that person. They can wear it and then they don't have to worry about having a dinner party and having, you know, showing the pieces on the wall. They get to wear it with them wherever they are. I really want it to be that wearable art piece. I like them to all be each one original. I have certain lines that I have somewhat multiples of, even though they're going to be different within themselves because I'm hand making each piece. But the larger ones that you're speaking of, I make that one. It is retired as soon as it finds its home. I write the date and it's over. That person owns that original. They don't see that. They don't see their self coming and going. One of the things that is incredible about your work is that every piece is unique. But there must have been times when you felt like, oh, man, I really nailed this particular design. And you know you could sell it 10 times. I mean, how do you stop yourself from repeating designs? The way that I kind of do that is that I want it to be such an original piece. And I want it to be that that belongs to that person, that that part of it, that connection with that customer, that patron, I really want them to feel special that they don't go and they say, oh, well, which, which show were you at when you got yours? And that just, that idea kind of makes me just, my eye twitches. So, <laughs> so I just, I try to just really look at the fact of creating that piece letting that piece go to its home. And then it also helps me to say, well, I can't remake this. It helps to open me up to new materials, new products, new because I'm always finding different ways to create new pieces and to be able to kind of express where my direction is now. So it, it's, a, it's a win-win in that way. It's kind of a bad if, you know, if it's something I totally love and I'm like, 
geez, I won't be able to. But then I always look and I, I have a lot of friends who, you know, different workshops, different things from across the country say, hey, you should try this new product. Or, hey, have you looked at that? And so that helps to ease that. Oh, geez, I can't keep it fresh. It. Yeah. <laughs> keep it, or I can't make that again. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so what is your own jewelry collection like? Are there babies that you make and you just cannot part with? Yes. <laughs> yes, there there has been some. And so usually at an art fair, you'll see me wearing like these specific maybe five or six pieces that I get to the point like, no, I, I, I can't do it. I, you know, I've actually placed them out, put the price tag on them. And when I find someone getting ready to pick it up and I find myself like like a small bead of sweat goes on the side. <laughs> it's like, mm. And then they end up going to another piece and then they find their baby. I'm like, ah. And then my husband is usually, James, my husband is usually with the shows with me. And he's looking at me like, don't you dare. And I'm like, okay. And then the next thing I know is I pack everything up. That one gets packed aside in my luggage. And then the other, you know, it's like, so the next day I have a new tag out. I have another piece in that spot. He said, yeah, you did it. I said, yeah, I can't let it go. Uh Uh-uh. No, no. Can't do it. Can't do it. Is making your jewelry your full-time job? Yes. Yes. At this time, definitely. I uh, used to work for a bead store and they ended up closing. And once that happened and I, my hours started getting dwindling down, I found myself saying, well, either I go and get another job or I go ahead and go full tilt into doing doing the shows and doing my art. And I started just to really research galleries, to represent myself in galleries, to do the different shows, the exhibitions. So that's how it became uh, more towards full time. But you find out that it's kind of hard if you've already applied for shows, you've got accepted. And then your job says, well, we're not going to have hours for you. And then you try to get a job and they say, oh, we need you weekends. That's not going to work. So I just had to make that decision. It's like, I love what I do. I really do. And so I said, well, let's just go for it. <laughs> well, Alison Norfleet Bringer's jewellery can be seen on her website at alnbcollections.com. And you are always such a joy to be with. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate this. The Latin phrase per adua ad astra means through struggle to the stars and is a succinct way of summing up the career of my next guest this morning, the artist, author, speaker and entrepreneur Malcolm McRae. Now in his early 40s, his career started as a young teenager when the only thing between Malcolm and starvation were his airbrush painting skills. But by the age of 18, necessity, determination and the love of art had given him the drive to open his own art shop and create a six-figure income. Today, he travels all over the country teaching airbrushing classes, inspiring young artists and giving motivational talks. He's also a published author, was awarded the 2020 Change Maker of the Year Award by Southeast Missouri's Bee Magazine, and last year, during the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, was commissioned by AT&T to produce two large public murals that represent social justice. His core belief is that art truly has the opportunity and power to change lives. And I am so delighted that I get to chat with him this morning. Malcolm McRae, welcome to Speaking of the Arts. 
Oh, it's an honor to be here. Thank you for having me. There is so much from the life and times of Malcolm McRae that we could talk about for the next 15 minutes. So I'm <laughs> going to have to make some hard choices. I definitely want to talk about your fabulous art bus and your nonprofit organization, Pollination Station. But let's start with a little background on how you got your name, Malcolm Airbrush Assassin McRae. Wow. So... That name was given to me. I've been doing airbrushing now for over 20 years now. And um, I started off as a kid uh, airbrushing on the street corner um, T-shirts. And in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where I was born and raised, and I kind of moved around a little bit, that name was kind of given to me because people were always bringing me stuff to airbrush. And they were like, man, you you assassinating it, man, you know? So, so you know, everything from uh, cars to clothing to murals to tennis shoes, uh, roughly around 11 to 12 years old, that's kind of like what I dove into as far as a young creative individual. So that's kind of like how the name, how the name kind of came to me. Somebody was like, man, you an assassin with that airbrush. So I stuck. Airbrush assassin. You describe your art as freedom art. Tell us what that means to you. For me, art has been a tool to um, express myself creatively, but also uh, personally as well. So, you know, I grew up in a pretty rough kind of environment. Um, My mom and my dad raised us to be very strong minded. But, you know, we grew up in a poverty kind of stricken environments. And even though my parents worked it was just always things kind of going on in different environments when you're kind of dealing with poverty. So you tend to kind of have tension and stress and also a lot of uh, trauma. And for me, art has always been a tool to not only express myself, but to deal with different things that might be difficult just in life. So my work is built around being free to express yourself, be free to live your life built around your own standards and be free to be able to share your gift with the world. So my art is kind of like a snapshot of that. Well, back in 2013, you published your memoir called To Live, To Create, To Inspire, How Art Saved My Life. And this is the message you take to communities and at-risk youth all over the country about how you overcame poverty in an unforgiving environment. But not every at-risk child has your art skills. And I wonder at what moment in sharing your story do you see the light bulb moments in your young audiences? All the time. I devote a large period of time engaging with young people because through my life I have always had mentors and people who have given me opportunities to to learn and opportunities to express myself and opportunities to grow. Um, So my my success is built around the foundation of having great mentors and great people in my life that shared and helped me to be able to develop as an artist, as a a black man, as an entrepreneur and so on. So uh, young people have always been very powerful. I'm a father as well. I have a a daughter that's uh, 19 in college now. But young people are the future. I started off my career very, very young. I'm 40 now. But as a young kid, people didn't take me serious. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So 
I remember that feeling of wanting to do my thing and airbrush and training, but the political structure of just being a kid, you know, adults didn't take me serious. So when I see young people, I'm always um, I'm always eager to be able to learn from them because one of the things that I realized is that dealing with and working with young people, you kind of build a bond immediately. Either they like you or they don't like you, <laughs> and a trust kind of thing is uh, a tool that I use to communicate. So for me, because also I run into a lot of adults and I just remember growing up, it was like people were always telling me you can't make a, a living as an artist. So when I talk to young people, my whole number one goal is the book and the memoir was a personal testimony and a tool for me to heal and also an opportunity for me to have a tool to share with others to let them know, hey, I went through different things in life. My mom passed when I was young, went through different trials and tribulations. But if I was able to make it through, then you're able to make it through. So whatever that craft is, whatever that skill is, whatever that talent, I believe we're all born with a talent. And the sooner that we figure what that talent is, the sooner that we can be more self-sustaining and more happier in life. Well, you, as I said, you travel all over the country. And I think uh, you said somewhere that you really don't like air travel. And so you came up with the idea of the Pollination Station Art Bus. So I think back in 2019, is it you founded a 501c3 nonprofit called Pollination Station. And so let's start off with the organization itself before we get to the bus that moves you around the country, because I just love that story. What what need did you see that the Pollination Station could meet? So I was getting calls from all over the country from schools and organizations. I deal with a lot of schools that are like Title I schools or have, you know, get public funding or a lot of public schools that don't have funding to bring arts in. One of the things that happened through education is the arts got cut immediately. So you might go to certain schools where they might have full sports, but they don't have any art programs. So the tool was to, as I was traveling, going into talking to students, I realized the most effective way to reach students is to reach teachers. So I started empowering teachers. And through that structure, I realized that I needed to create a blueprint to be able to help individuals, teachers, young people, entrepreneurs from a major, a bigger kind of like scale. And I was kind of just looking for a holistic approach of dealing with this because I've been an entrepreneur all my life. I know you can have a great idea, but if you don't have the right uh, infrastructure, then it's hard to facilitate your idea. So I was outside one day and um, I'm really a nature lover and I was it was a, a butterfly that started to come around me. And if you go to my Instagram page or anything, you can see for some reason insects come towards me. <laughs> some of them bite, but some of them just want to play. So it was kind of like this insect or this butterfly was telling me like, hey, I'm a pollinator. Here's a blueprint. And I watched it go into a flower. And it took some of the nectar, but some pollen fell onto his skin. And as I do, started doing more and more research about the earth and pollinators, I was like, yo, this is a sustainable infrastructure. We're talking about Mother Earth. I said, you know, we all are pollinators as human beings, um, pollinating, giving, changing, uh, engaging with individuals on an everyday level. So if we can just share some positivity using art and creativity as a tool, um, we can pollinate this whole globe with positivity using art and creativity so that's how the blueprint came to life from there literally i started to study 
nature and pollinators and how, you know, we, fruit and seeds and all of those things come from the pollinators and that circle of life. So I built the whole nonprofit around that, that circle of life of going into areas that might not have opportunities, might not have financial uh, resources, coming in, doing programs, using art. Because art is one of the things that I realized that is non-threatening. Like everybody wants to paint. You know, you can get people that might be from political sides and older and young people or different people from different races. But if you put a paintbrush in their hand and give them this opportunity to create People have a tendency to go into being a child again. So the Pollination uh, Station, the nonprofit, was built around three things, creating, sharing, and then growing. And those three things incorporate, you know, the whole structure of the nonprofit. So at what point did you think, I know, I'll buy a 40-foot MCI coach bus and convert it into an art bus that I'll also live on? Well, one of the things like any artist to tell you that it's very difficult to find space for artists. So even whether you're living in a country town or whether you're living in a, a big city, like creative space and like affordable space, um, you know, is just very difficult. So I started to think um, specifically like Cape Girardeau, Jackson, that kind of area in southern Illinois, you know, as an artist, it was still very difficult for me to be able to find studio space and space to live consistently. So, you know, I looked at real estate numerous times and there were uh, just some situations that were just making it very difficult to obtain a piece of property. So I was thinking and it was like, okay, I had a bus. This is not my first bus. When I was about (laughs) 21 years old, 22 years old, I had this idea and I bought the first MCI bus off of eBay, me and some friends, and we toured around and I did airbrushing and festivals. But this time I really needed the bus because it was kind of fulfilling a couple of different problems that I was having. First of all, I'm a family man. I was flying all across the country doing projects and uh, was away from my wife and my daughter and my family. And then secondly, I couldn't bring all of the equipment with me because if I was doing a big mural on a basketball court or just a major piece of art and I wanted the community to get involved, I would have to have an opportunity to to take a lot of equipment. So through the ups and downs of just uh, thinking it out and following Craigslist and Facebook looking for the right bus, I didn't even tell my wife this. <laughs> <laughs> I bought a bus and then for her birthday, I like, sprung this like oh guess what we're gonna i got a surprise for you so i have a video on our youtube page that shows like when she's the first time her seeing the bus and we converted it i already kind of had a blueprint and we took the time to convert it and then with some community help been able to raise some funds to be able to get it you know just some 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 work that we needed to get done on it and from there we uh last year we actually had like a full tour planned and then COVID came and we had to restructure some things. So now, you know, we're, we're back on the road again and uh, facilitating and pollinating spaces all over the country. What's your miles per gallon in that bus? On a high end is seven, on a low end, five. Oh, man. <laughs> so we normally plan for five, you know. So this bus was built to um, have 47 passengers that range anywhere from 100 to a couple hundred pounds. And then um, all their luggage as well. So we took all of the seats out. And there's it's no way we can ever max out the capacity because, um, you know, this thing was meant to be on the road 365 days of the year. 
So. You have a lovely video on your website of the conversion process, and it is a, it's a, it's a swanky bus. I mean, you've got a nice living <laughs> conditions. But as well as all the travel around the country, you are also at the start of a five-year project in your own community of Cape Girardeau titled Pollinate Cape, which is an interactive experience to uplift the local community. Before we close, just tell us a little bit about that project. Pollinate Cape is a project that's like a blueprint of um, a major bigger projects that we got coming up. So the bigger project is called Pollinate the States. And as we're coming into different um, states, we're going to be focusing in on different locations that we're going to be pollinating. So Pollinate Cape, of course, that's the town that I, I love and I really wanted to do something for Cape Girardeau. And I'm using, um, like again, Mother Nature as a blueprint to just kind of create a hub of creativity. And one of the biggest um, walls in Cape Girardeau is the Mississippi uh, flood wall that's downtown. And when I first came to this area, I really had a vision to, I wanted to paint on this wall um, really, really, really bad. But throughout the years, it took about 10 years to finally get the city, get everybody uh, together to have an opportunity to use this wall as a tool to promote creativity in Cape Girardeau. So there's going to be numerous locations all through Cape Girardeau. If you haven't been through Cape Girardeau, it's a beautiful town. We want to also use it as an opportunity to not only uplift the spirits of individuals who live in Cape, but also get visitors and different people coming through the area because it's a beautiful uh, area and with art and creativity gives us an opportunity to kind of help some of the small businesses as well. So it's a win-win situation for the city. Um, it's a win-win situation for Cape Girardeau and all of the residents. And the piece of art that we started it off with is on the flood wall called A Wish of Hope. And it is an image of a young girl of color. And um, she has like a dandelion and she's blowing the seeds. And they represent young people, the future, and then also the hope and the seeds of one day, you know, those seeds become plants and constantly are pollinating and helping creativity and art and success grow in Cape Girardeau. So that's pretty much what it is in a nutshell. <laughs> well, Malcolm McRae's website is a veritable rabbit hole of art, story, inspiration, <laughs> videos and images. And so if you visit MalcolmMcRae.com, just know that it might be a while before you emerge. Malcolm, I love the Pollination Station and I wish you safe and creative travels as you spend the next few years driving all around the United States. I do hope you come to Columbia one day and thank you so much for making time to chat this morning. Thank you very much, and you have a blessed day. And that is it for another week. All of the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm, as well as on Spotify. And of course, you can also connect via the KOPN website at kopn.org. to my guests this evening, all of whom were recorded at various points last year. Lindsay Dunnigan, Andy Thomas, Alison Norfleet-Bringer and Malcolm McRae. Thanks as always to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song Restless Heart opens and closes the show. You can find more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, 
stay arty, Missouri. Missouri.